the scene at Mount Sinai was a really strange one. Because at Mount Sinai, you had a group of people at the base of this mountain who had seen God do incredible things. They owed everything they had, not just their freedom, but their lives to God because he was sustaining them as they walked through the wilderness. They had seen God's power put on displays in ways that they could have never fathomed or even imagined. And yet when Moses went up the mountain to receive the commandments from God, these commandments that were going to set his people apart from the rest of the world, these commandments that were going to make a declaration that not only am I your God, but you are my people and you belong to me. While that was happening at the top, at the bottom, the people started saying, Moses has taken a while. And we've been wandering in the wilderness for a while now. And yeah, we've seen what God can do, but maybe we've exhausted the limits of God's power. Maybe we've reached the end of what God can do for us. And so maybe we need to look somewhere else. And so they went around and they gathered all the gold that they had with them. And they took that gold and they melted it down and they formed an idol in the form of a calf. And they began to worship it. And so while Moses was at the top of the mountain receiving a word from God for these people, they began to worship another God, hoping that maybe this God could give them exactly what they wanted and thought that they needed. And it's strange because they knew where this God came from. They remembered the necklaces and the rings and the pieces of gold that they took to burn them down, things that they at one point in time owned and was part of their property. They watched as someone took all of these trinkets and melted them down and watched the solid forms waste away into liquid. And then they saw someone with his own hand shape this gold into a calf. They knew exactly where it came from. They knew exactly what it was worth. And they knew exactly how it was made. And yet they still chose to worship that God in place of the God who was not made with human hands or by any hands at all. A God who was eternally existent and had shown his power so clearly to the people. Idolatry is an incredibly curious thing. But the reality is it's a constant in our lives. Not just in the form of golden calves, but in all the things that we think have more value or more power than the God who set the world into motion and sustains it by his word and by his power. We've been looking through Psalm 118, or Psalm 113 through 118. And we find ourselves this morning at Psalm 115, which is part of these Hallel Psalms. These psalms of praise that were designed to push the readers and the worshipers here, probably in the midst of exile, back to the time when God set his people free during the exile. And they were designed to help the people praise the one true God, the God who had the power to set them free in the midst of all circumstances and in the midst of all difficulties. And these psalms of praise were very exclusive to the one and only God who had the power to do that. This psalm in particular, as it would be sung during the Passover meal and all their other feasts and festivities and during the times of worship that the people would come together, reminded them that he is the one true God. And if he is the one true God, then nothing else can be. And so all of these warring factions in our lives can't stand and something has to give. And so Psalm 115 teaches the worshipers of God to see their idols for what they are. And also to recognize who God is. And because of that, to offer up praise to the one true God, the only one worthy. 
And now because these psalms were meant to be used in public worship, we're going to use those psalms together. And I forgot to do this last week, but Donnie, if you'll go ahead and pull up the passage of Scripture, instead of just me reading the Scripture before I preach today, I'm going to get your help. And so like we do with all of our confessions and readings, the words that are bold and underlined will all read together, and the words in plain text I'll read alone. So worship with me as we read God's Word. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, and noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord both small and the great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made the heaven and the earth. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth He has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. May God add His blessing and His favor to the reading of His Word. Thanks be to God for His Word. Great job. Father God, thank you so much for your word and the beauty of your word as it's echoed by your people. God, we thank you that you speak to us and that you love us and that you care for us. And God, we thank you that you remind us when we forget. That you remind us of your infinite power and that you are the one true God and no one else can stand in your place. So God, help us to see our idolatry. Help us to see the places where we take the glory that should be yours and give it to ourselves or to someone else. And remind us that that there's nowhere else that we could possibly turn because salvation belongs to the Lord. So teach us to be true worshipers of you and help all of our praise fall directly at your feet. And we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Suppose there was a man who went on vacation with his family. And he and his family did all the things that you would do when you go on a beach vacation. They probably spent some time on the beach. Not my favorite thing, but people do that. So, okay, he spent some time on the beach. They probably got in the ocean, which, again, is not my thing because it's gross and dangerous. There are things that can eat you in the ocean. And also, it's just a giant toilet for all of the fish. And so, it's unnatural to get in such a thing. But because people do, and this is a parable for the people, this guy probably got in the ocean. They probably went out to eat, and they ate some good food. They probably went shopping. They spent some time sleeping in and resting and recuperating. But in the midst of this, one day after lunch, he began to notice that he felt a little weird. And he looked at his hands, and he noticed that he was starting to get a rash. But he was, you know, an older guy. He had been through life. He knew that sometimes you get a rash. And so when you get a rash, you put some cream on it and hope that it goes away. And so he went to the store, and he bought some cream, and he put some cream on the rash. 
But the cream didn't seem to be helping, and the rash got worse. And then as the rash was getting worse, he noticed that he was swelling a little bit. But being younger in life, he was an, an athlete when he was younger. And so he knew he'd turned some ankles. He'd had some jammed wrists before. And so he knew when you're swelling, you put ice on it. And so he rubbed some cream on the rash. He put some ice on the swelling, but it didn't seem to be helping. And then he noticed he was getting short of breath. But again, he was an athlete when he was younger, and so he had some sports-induced asthma. So he thought, oh, no, when I get short of breath, I take an inhaler. I've got this emergency inhaler. And so he rubs on some cream. He puts some ice on his swelling, and he starts to take from his inhaler. But things just get worse and worse and worse to the point where he can barely breathe at all. And so his wife, seeing her swollen, rashy, gasping husband, does the logical thing that a wife would do and takes him to the hospital. And so he goes to the hospital, and they begin to treat him. And after everything settles down, he's, he looks at his nurse and he says, I don't understand. I know how to treat all these things. I put, I put cream on my rash and I put ice on my swelling and I use my inhaler for my breathing and none of it seemed to be working. And she said, well, sir, based on everything that your wife told us, it seems pretty easy to deduce that you're allergic to shrimp. And it doesn't matter how much you treat the symptoms, if you don't treat the source of the cause, then those symptoms are never going to go away and it's ultimately going to kill you. And so unless you stop eating shrimp, it doesn't matter how much cream and ice and an inhaler you have, nothing is going to help and this is eventually going to destroy you. Psalm 115 is all about idolatry. But idolatry has a source. And verse 1 recognizes that. The psalm begins by saying, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. The psalm starts with a recognition that there is something wrong inside of us, that there is something deep within us that wants to take the glory away from God and assign it somewhere else. And specifically, it wants to assign it to us. We have this desire for glory. This psalm begins with an admission that there is something deep within us that wants idols, but more specifically that wants to be idols and wants to give away the glory that's due to God and God alone. And while idolatry, when we think of it in its truest sense, is worshiping something other than God, idolatry at its core is self-worship. Because even if we're not directly worshiping ourselves, the reason that we look for idols, the reason that we look for things other than God is because we want a God that can give us what we want. The people of Israel stopped worshiping the one true God because they didn't like what he was doing. They didn't like the direction that he was taking them in. And so they wanted to find another God who would get them to the point in their lives that they wanted to be. And so while they were worshiping the calf, what they were really worshiping was their own comfort and their own glory. Idolatry is a symptom of something deeper that requires a deep solution that meets it at the core. Now, it would have been easier for the psalmist to get up and just say, O Israel, forsake your idols. Put your idols away and turn to God and give them an instruction on how to do that. And a lot of times when we come to church, when we come to worship, we want something that nice and simple and concise. We want to be able to have step one, two, and three so that we can treat the symptoms, so that we can get rid of the things in our lives that we feel like aren't supposed to be there. And so we come and we say, God, just teach us how to get rid of our idols. Just teach us how to get rid of these things that stand in your way. But we get a little more uncomfortable when it becomes about changing something deep within us. Biblical moralism and behavior modification only treats the symptoms while the infection continues to spread. 
And if we turn away from one idol, then we'll find another because there's still an idol factory inside of our heart that's trying to grab that attention from God and point it to ourselves. And so if I get rid of this calf, then I'll find something else and I'll bring it into my life and it'll take over and become the idol that I worship. So instead of just starting by saying, get rid of your idols, the psalmist begins by saying, look deep within. He calls the people to come face to face with the prideful idol maker that lives within us and to wage war on it with three powerful words. Not to us. And in those three simple words, in that very short sentence and short phrase, it contains this incredible picture of what it means to worship God. It's an act of humility saying, I'm not here for myself. I'm not here to gain anything from me, but God, because of who you are, I want all of the glory and all of the honor and all of the praise to fall directly to you. And maybe more of our church services should begin with these words. Maybe we should come together more often and remind ourselves and pray to God that this would not be about us and what I can take away and what I can receive, but that I come here with all of my friends and church family and people who are professing the name of Christ to give you honor and praise and glory. Maybe more of our days should begin with this simple prayer. Maybe when we wake up, as soon as we lift our heads from the pillow, or maybe before, we should offer up this prayer saying, Today, God, not to me. I don't want today to be about me and what I can gain and what I can earn, but I want today to be about you because you're the reason that I'm here today. You're the reason that I'm taking this breath. Your mercies are new every morning and your salvation is sufficient every single day. And so because of that, not to me, but to you be the glory. Whether I'm eating or drinking, let it all be for your glory and your fame. It would have been easy for the Israelites at the end of the Passover, at the end of the Exodus, to take a lot of credit. Because depending on the way they tell that story, somebody is going to get the glory. And instead of pointing all the glory back to God, the Scriptures and the Psalms and the people as they told the story over and over again could have told the story about the hero Moses who came in and valiantly took his people out of captivity from Egypt and took them into the wilderness where they came together as the people of God and they prepared themselves. And then they moved from city to city, conquering all of these cities until they finally got to the promised land that they wanted and they took it and it could all be about Israel and their glory. But they knew better. They understood that the only reason that they left Egypt The only reason that they made it through the wilderness, the only reason they crossed the Red Sea and the Jordan River, the only reason they found themselves eating someone else's food in a land that they didn't earn is because God gave it to them. And it was his power and his might and his glory. And so it makes sense that Psalm 115, one of these Egyptian Hillel Psalms that would remind the people of God's deliverance in Exodus would point to this idea of forsaking idols and turning to God and looking to Him for all glory and honor and praise because anything that we have as God's people, anything good in our lives is directly from Him and from His power. And so He deserves all of the glory. And so with that truth as the foundation, the people used those three words to remind themselves and all who could hear that He is God and they are not. And then this psalm continues to tell us what that God looks like. It says, not to us, but to your name, give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens and He does 
all that he pleases. The God that deserves honor and grace and glory and praise is a God who has steadfast love. And we sang about that earlier as Lydia sang the song that really talks about just the pure steadfastness of God, that he never wavers and that he never changes. And one of the characteristics of God that has been the same for all of eternity past and all of eternity future is that God is a God who loves his people with an unconditional steadfast love. And as Lydia said, who is faithful even when we're not. And that even when the people cry out, where is your God and what is he doing? The Israelites could respond, our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. While your God stands by and you can see him and touch him with your hands, our God holds the universe in the palm of his. And while your God can only do what you give it permission to do, our God does all that he pleases. And so he's worthy of worship and honor and praise. And this description of God sets the standard against which all other deities should be measured. All other idols should be measured, and we find that nothing else could stand against it. When we see this picture of God, we realize that all self-worship and all idolatry is misplaced. And so in light of all this, the call is very clear. We're called to worship God and God alone. To come together and say, not to us. And just like our confession of sin every week and our confession of faith, it's a corporate declaration. It's not an individual thing that we say. We say not to us, to every single one of us, to all who gather, because we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all have this problem living deep within us, but we all have the calling to worship God and God alone. And so as all the people of Israel would be gathered there in their worship and in their liturgy saying not to us, we find ourselves in the midst of that congregation as well, with the same needs as the people of Israel and the same call that they had even so long ago to give God all honor and glory and praise. They say admitting you have a problem is the first step to solving it. And this psalm helps us to do that, to help admit that we have a problem deep within us and to realize that the solution to this problem doesn't begin with behavior modification, but it begins with worship. It doesn't begin with just trying to put away all of our other idols, but it begins by worshiping the God who is. And when we truly worship the God who is, we find exactly how meaningless and how worthless all of the other idols in our lives are. And so before we could ever think about getting rid of the symptoms, we have to treat the source. Before we could ever begin to get rid of our idols, we have to worship the one true God. And so we have the challenge here, just like the people of ancient Israel, to realize our deeper issue and to respond to it, not to us. The Midrash is a collection of books, of commentary, ancient rabbinical Jewish commentary on the Jewish scriptures, on the Old Testament. And in the Midrash, they would use a lot of stories, often fictional and speculative, to help illuminate some of the things that happen deep within Scripture. And so one of those fictional stories that helps to work out a theology of idolatry comes out of the Genesis Rabbah, one of the Midrash texts. And it's a fictional story about Abraham living in his father's house that was filled with idols. And so in this fictional story, Abraham is working in his father's tent where he sold idols. And his father had to leave for a little while. And Abraham took it as an opportunity to call out some idolatry. And so one person comes in and wants to purchase an idol for worship. 
And Abraham says, how, how old are you, sir? And the sir says, or the sir, the guy that comes in, also a sir, says, I'm 50 years old. And Abraham says, so you're 50 years old, and you've come here to worship an idol that's a day old. And the man realizes the folly of his idolatry and walks out of shame. And then another woman walks in and wants to bring an offering to the idols. And so Abraham takes the offering and he recognizes this is an opportunity to, again, show the futility of the idols. And so before his father comes home, Abraham takes a stick and he bashes all of the other idols except for the biggest idol in the tent. And he takes the stick and he puts it in the hand of the biggest idol. And his father comes in and he says, what have you done, Abraham? And Abraham says, oh, dad, listen, (sighs) this woman brought in an offering for the idols and then they began to fight over it. And the little ones began to fight over the offering. And then the big one took this stick and he beat all of the other idols and destroyed them and took the offering for himself. And his father gets belligerently angry. He says, do you think that I'm stupid? These are just clay and stone. So please tell me how they could possibly get up and do all of these things that you said. And Abraham said, if they're just stone and clay and if they're unable to do what I said, then why would you worship them? After establishing the heart of true worship, the psalmist moves to the silliness of idol worship. Verse 4 through 7 says, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. Noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel. Feet but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. The psalmist said these idols might look like something, but they're nothing. They might look like they have the ability to do something, but they have no abilities at all. Sure, they've got ears, but they can't hear you when you cry out. Sure, they have eyes, but they can't see you when you're in need and when you worship them. They may have mouths, but no words come out, and there's no sound in their throat. And yes, you've given them feet, but if you're in trouble, they can't walk to help you because these idols are nothing. And so it shows how silly idolatry really is. But the problem is that idolatry only looks silly when they aren't your idols. If you're not a person who goes home to a bunch of statues in your house, if you saw someone bowing down to a statue, you may say, that's ridiculous. That can't hear you. That's not a God. Why would you worship that? If you're a person who doesn't care much for fame, maybe you're a little more of an introverted personality. And so you see someone who worships celebrity and is willing to give away everything they have to become famous, you may look at them and say, that's so ridiculous. That can't get you anything. That's just empty worship and empty praise, and that fame is going to get you nothing. If you're someone who doesn't care about wealth, then you may look at someone who's willing to work 80, 90 hours a week and attain as much wealth as they possibly can and give their worship to their finances. You may look at them and say, that's absolutely ridiculous. Why would you worship that? But each of us have something in our lives, sometimes more than one thing in our lives, that that's our idol. And we're willing to give up all that we have and we don't recognize exactly how silly it is because whether it's fame, money, sex, relationships, sports, any of those things that we could put in that blank of idolatry, when that's our thing, it's our thing. And when we worship it, it becomes our God. And when we're worshiping our God, it doesn't look very silly from the outside. 
There's a reason why the ancient Israelites needed this reminder, and there's a reason why we do as well. We have this incredible ability to give life, to give strength, to give power to these idols in our lives that they don't naturally have. We create our golden calves. We create these deities in our lives that they have ears and they have eyes and they have mouths that they look like something that can solve our problems and give us what we need and give us what we want. But in reality, those things can only go as far as we let them because in that picture as idol makers, we are the God. And we're bound by our own limitations. And so these idols have nothing on their own except for what we give to them. And so we need this reminder over and over again that the things that we can so desperately hope in may look like gods, but they're not gods. They may look like saviors, but they're not saviors. They may look like something that has the power to change our lives, but in reality they have no power at all, at least when it comes to saving us. Because while these idols may have the power to save, have no power to save, they do have the power to destroy. Verse 8 says, those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. This is a grave warning. The psalmist and the people who would use these psalms in worship are making a declaration that when we worship our idols, we become like them. That the image that we at one point in time conformed, all of a sudden we start conforming to that image that we created. And so we become people now who have eyes but can't see the truth. We have ears, but can't hear it. We have mouths, but we can't declare it. And we might have feet, but we can't do anything because our worship is in vain and our idols are leading us down a path to destruction. And what's even more scary about verse 8 is that verse 8 teaches us that the idol maker and the idol worshiper are of absolutely no distinction. It doesn't matter whether you're the one creating the idol or you're the one who worships the idol. You are on a path to become like that idol and to be conformed to its image that will eventually lead us to our own destruction. And so we need this reminder in our worship. There's a reason why in a liturgical service we have a lot of repetition. So if you come here every week, our confession of sin is the same every week. And as if you come a few times, you get to know it really well. And if you come a lot of times, then hopefully it starts to become ingrained in your heart and you can almost recite it without looking at it. And the reason why a psalm like this would be used in all of the feasts and all the festivals and in the gatherings of worship for the people is that we need this constant reminder that He is God and that we're not. We need this constant reminder that all of our idols, all the things that we think have so much value and so much power, really have no value and power at all. And just like the mercies of God are new every morning, so is that desire in our heart to take the glory away from God. So is that desire in our minds to look to other things for salvation. And we need this constant reminder that our idols have no power. The things that we hope in, unless it is God and the, the power of the gospel, has no power to do anything for us but to eventually kill us. And so our hearts are pointed instead away from the idols that, that have all of these features but none of the power to a God who has steadfast love and faithfulness, who does all that He pleases. 
While our idols are bound to our limitations, our God lives in the heavens and has none. And so why would we worship a God on such a small scale when we have free access to worship the God who created in the heavens and the earth by simply the power of his word and holds them and sustains them and is not conformed to our image, but is conforming us to his own when we follow him. We're going to worship something. As we saw a couple weeks ago, human beings, we are worshipers by nature. Our hearts, our spirits, our minds need something to fix that affection on. And because we're worshipers by nature, we are going to be conformed to an image. G.K. Beale has a book very simply and cleanly titled that we are what we worship. And that's the truth. The more we worship something, the more that we become like it. And so we're going to be conformed to an image. And the question that this psalm forces us to ask is whose image is that going to be? Are we going to be conformed to the image of our idols that have no power at all? Or are we going to be conformed to the image of a God who loves us and saves us by his grace and mercy and has unending power and wisdom and wants to call us his children? This psalm is a litmus test for our worship. It gives us the line to show us who we should be worshiping and how. But this psalm is also a war against our idolatry. And as we memorize this psalm, and as we recite this psalm, and as we use it in worship, and as we use it in our private devotion, it constantly wages war on the idolatry inside of us. And so let's use this psalm that God has given us to redirect our worship daily to the God who is and was and always will be. Now, after the lines have been drawn, the psalmist calls the people to worship. And this next chunk of this chapter reminds me an awful lot of Joshua, when the people finally get to the promised land. And if you were here a while ago now, when we went through the book of Joshua, towards the very end, we see Joshua's final address to the people. And after all they had seen, as God brought them through the wilderness, brought them from city to city and conquest to conquest, and now they were sitting in the midst of the promised land, taking hold of their inheritance, Joshua stands before the people and he says, Now listen, you need to choose this day who you'll serve. He says, As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And it's basically Joshua looking at the people saying, After all that you've seen, after everything that God has done for you, after all of the works that he has done on your behalf, and as you've seen him take you from the wilderness now to the land that he promised us so many generations ago, after you've seen that take place, how could you possibly look anywhere else? What other God could you possibly serve? And I don't know about you, but for me and my house, because of what we've seen and what we know to be true about this God, we are going to serve the Lord. That's the exact call that the psalmist makes here in verse 9 and 10. It says, O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. I love the all-encompassing nature of these psalms. As I was preparing this the sermon series and looking at all of these as a whole, one of the things that stood out time and time again is that these psalms were for everyone. These psalms were for corporate worship. And this repetition here in verse 9, 10, and 11 reminds us of exactly that. It says, O Israel, 
Praise the Lord. O Israel, trust in the Lord because He is your help and your shield. To all the people that were gathered in worship, to all the people of Israel, you can trust in God. And then he says, to the house of Aaron, to all the Levites and the priests and the religious leaders, you as well, even though you have this place of high esteem, trust in the Lord. And then there's this great catch-all in verse 11 that says, you who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. So Israel, trust in the Lord. Priests and Levites, trust in the Lord. And now everyone else, trust in the Lord. And what's so amazing about that phrase, that you who fear the Lord, eventually that phrase would come to reflect all of the Gentiles who would come to the synagogues to worship. And this is a direct point ahead to the gospel when Jesus comes in to bring salvation not to one group of people, but to all nations and to anyone who believe. And so we can find ourselves here in this declaration. It's not just the people of ancient Israel. It's not just the priests and their leaders, but to anyone who trusts in the name of the Lord and in the power of Christ. We have this call to trust in God because He is our help and our shield. Not the idols that offer nothing to us, but the God who loves us enough and is our help in our time of need. This commandment isn't regional, it isn't racial, it isn't based on any one particular person because neither is our God. And we see that in Christ when Jesus came to the world to open up salvation. That's what we get on Pentecost. People worshiping God in all different tongues, in all different languages, and the gospel spreading out and going to the ends of the earth. We see that beauty, and now we can all be part of this declaration to trust in the Lord because He is our help and our shield. It's a call for all people from all places to forsake your idols and get rid of these things that are worthless and praise the God who is because he's our help and our shield. Verse 12 and 13. Give us the benefit of trusting in God, if you will. Because the psalmist says the Lord has remembered us and he will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both great and small. The result of trusting in God and giving God our unconditional and very fixed and focused praise is that we receive blessing. And again, while we don't come to receive, we cannot come to worship God without receiving. As we come to praise the God who is, that God blesses His people because He's a God of steadfast love and has an affection for His people. And then the psalmist offers up this blessing over the people saying, May the Lord give you increase, you and all your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. Not only can we trust in this God, but when we receive His blessing, we receive the blessing of a God who owns the heavens and the earth. The God who holds them all in the palm of His hand. The God who has the power to bless us far beyond what we could ever imagine. And not simply to bless us right here and now, because a lot of times our lives don't feel like blessings. But through Christ to give us a blessing that will never end. A promise that will never fade away. An inheritance that no one can take away and that is far greater than anything we could ever imagine. As excited and passionate that the people felt in ancient Israel when they finally arrived to the promised land, the promised hope that we have in Christ is so much bigger than that. It's so much better than that to the point where the comparison almost seems weak, but it's the best that we have to draw this comparison when God, through Christ, makes all things right and all things new, and we are with Christ forever as the children of God in the presence of God. 
The God of Israel is not a God who has ears and can't hear, but a God who hears us when we cry and when we praise Him. He's not a God who has eyes but can't see, but He sees us and He walks with us through our good times and our bad because He has feet and He can move. We have a God who has a mouth and uses that mouth to speak to His people, but not only to speak to us, but to bless us and shower us with His affection and His grace. And He blesses those who trust in Him, both small and great. And this is very similar language to what happened in chapter 113. When we see that God, who was above the heavens and looked down on the nations, was also a God who raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to let them sit with princes. This psalm reminds us that not only is He a God who reaches to all people no matter where they are, but that there's no distinction in the worshipers of God, both the poor and the wealthy. Both the small and the great are all brought together on the same place because all of our stuff, no matter if we have a lot of it or a little, looks like nothing to God. And so He loves us and cares for us no matter who we are and what we've done. And because of that, this is a God that's not only worthy of our unflinching trust, but our unending praise. Because verse 17, or excuse me, verse 16 says, The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth He has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth forevermore. Praise the Lord. This is our commissioning. Because God is who He says He is. Because our idols are weak and fruitless, we can trust in the Lord and the Lord will bless us. And because that's the relationship that we have with God, our responsibility is to use our dominion in this world that He has given us to honor and to glorify God. To break the silence that Psalm 115, 17 talks about where he says, the dead don't praise the Lord, nor will any who go down in silence. It's our responsibility as we draw breath here on earth to use what God has given us to bring him all the praise and all the glory and all of the honor from this time forward to forevermore. And I love that that phrase is repeated that again was in chapter 113. Because two weeks ago, we had the commandment to worship God now and forevermore. And again, here today, we have the commandment to worship God from now to forevermore. That every time we praise God, the greatest to the smallest, any one of us who come together to praise God, we should praise Him like it's the first time it's ever happened and praise Him from this moment on forevermore. An unending praise that is continuous, that begins new every single morning. The psalm reminds us that we're prone to wonder. That we're prone to auction off our worship to the highest bidder, to whoever we think can give us what we need so that at the end of the day, we can receive all the honor and the glory and the praise. But our idols have mouths, but they can't speak. They've got eyes, but they can't see. They have ears, but they can't hear. They have feet, but they can't go anywhere. And there's no sound in their throats. But our God is a God of steadfast love and faithfulness who is in the heavens and does all that he pleases, who calls all people great and small to have the opportunity to worship him and to receive his blessing and his grace because we can trust in him because he is our help and our shield. And then he sends us out to go and to declare his praise all over the world. Not only did he show that to ancient Israel in the Passover, but now through Christ, to all those who would believe. 
Jesus, the better Moses, the better Passover, the better Exodus, takes us not out of captivity to a nation as we looked at last week, but he leads us out of our sin and out of our shame and out of our guilt and through his death and through his resurrection gives us the opportunity not only to be saved and forgiven, but to become sons and daughters of God and a part of a new creation that he'll one day finish when Christ comes again to restore everything back to the way that it should be and all of those who fear the Lord. All of those who trust in Christ for salvation will be with Christ forever in his presence as his worshipers, receiving an inheritance that belongs to him. The gospel is the cure for idolatry because it reminds us that there is nothing that can save us from this stuff inside of us except for Christ who loved the world so much that he gave, God gave his only son to take our sin, to take our shame, and to bring restoration to all those who trust in Him, not based on what we do. Just like Israel, we don't earn this by our own power, but God accomplishes something in us that we could never do on our own, and it's this gift that comes by grace, not by works. Thank God, because we can't work enough to do it. And when we hear that story, when we hear the picture of what the gospel really is, it is very clear that there is no other God, there's no other deity, there's no other worldview or idol that could possibly do that for us. And so why would we turn to worship anyone else? And that's a God. The God who would do that on our behalf. The God who also, at the same time, while He is personal and intimate, sits above the heavens and above the nations is a God who is worthy of all glory even the glory that we think belongs to us. He's a God who is trustworthy enough to forsake all others and a God who is good enough to receive our unending praise. And so Lydia is going to come and she's going to play quietly and we're just going to have a moment to respond to what we've heard in God's word today. And so this is a time when you can just sit in silent prayer if you would like and maybe you need to just confess some of the idols in your life And just spend some time praying, not to us, O Lord, but to your name be the glory. Maybe you're going through a time when when worshiping God seems very natural and very fixed. And it's in those times when we still need the reminder that we are prone to wonder. And pray that God would strengthen our hearts as we worship him well, so that in the times when it's dangerous for us to worship him poorly, that he would remind us who he is. If you're here and you've never trusted in the grace and mercy of God before, then you've heard what we call the gospel. That God so loved the world that he gave Christ and that whoever believes in him won't perish, will have everlasting life. And if you've never trusted in Christ for salvation or never gone through baptism, then I would encourage you, I'll be up here in the front. Pastor Adam is about halfway back and Pastor David is on the back row. And if you want to come and talk with any one of us about what it means to trust in Christ for salvation, we'll be here. But whether from your seat or from this altar with one of our pastors, let's just take this moment in quiet reflection to thank the God who is and reject the gods who aren't.